listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we're so thrilled to welcome a group of incredible writers to read to you from their new collection, Neplanta Familias. And after that, they'll be joining each other in conversation to talk more about their work. Before I introduce them, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing, and you can always shop online 24-7 at www.skylightbooks.com. I'm going to start by introducing you to Sergio Troncoso, the editor of this beautiful collection, and then he will introduce you to each of the writers before they read. Sergio Troncoso is the author of A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant Son, a collection of linked short stories on immigration, which Luis Alberto Urrea called a world-class collection. Troncoso also edited the 2021 anthology, Neplanta Familias, an anthology of Mexican-American literature on families and in-between worlds which received a starred review from Kirkus Reviews. A Fulbright scholar, Troncoso is currently president of the Texas Institute of Letters and teaches at the Yale Writers Workshop. Thank you for being here, Sergio. We're so excited to have everyone. Thank you, Skylight Books and Nat for inviting us. We're thrilled to be here. And, um, you know, I think this is a, a wonderful anthology. I think we're very excited about it. And I just wanted to, you know, remind people that, you know, the, the anthology just uh, got a start review from Kirkus and praised it as a deeply meaningful collection that navigates important nuances of identity. We even just appeared in Plowshares for somebody uh, who, uh, who reads that great literary journal. So that was exciting. So I'll be talking with three writers in the anthology today, David Dominguez, uh, Alex Espinosa and Reina Grande, all of them friends and, and really people I look up to, frankly, as writers. Uh, I've learned so much uh, about the writing craft from them, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted them in this anthology. So they're going to do a short reading of their work on, in Nepantla Familias, and then we'll have a discussion and answer questions about Nepantla and other topics. Um, and let me just take five minutes to give you the scope and theme of the anthology. Uh, and then we'll get to our writers. So the, the first thing to think about is that this anthology is a collection of essays, poetry, and short stories. And it's 30 works by 26 writers, and 25 of the 30 works are published here for the first time. So besides the three great writers we have today, you know, we have Sandra Cisneros, we have Jose Antonio Rodriguez, and Rigoberto Gonzalez, Deborah Paredes, Octavio Quintanilla, Diana Lopez, um, Helena Viramontes, you know, and I could keep going on, Ruben de Goyado and David Romo, of course, you know, just stellar first-class writers across the board. Um, and 
So just to introduce people who might not know about, you know, what is Nepantla? Uh, this odd word that we use, uh, and it comes from the waddle from the Aztecs, and it really means the middle ground or the middle space. And for me, you know, one of my um, philosophical mentors, so to speak, uh, it comes from Gloria Anzaldúa, of course, in Borderlands, La Frontera, the Mestiza Experience, her seminal work, which I've studied and, and read and reread. And just to quote from her book, just a little bit, seeing from two or more perspectives simultaneously renders those cultures transparent. And from the in-between place of Nepantla, you see through the fiction of the monoculture, unquote. So, so you know, Nepantla is this deeply Mexican-American experience of living in between the US and Mexico, English and Spanish, between different cultures and psychologies, identities, um, and even between new values and traditional values. So this sort of hybridity and combinations and complexity of identity versus an identity seen as a monoculture or a static version of identity. And so I, I believe, at least I wrote this in the introduction, that, that empathy is at the root of Nepantla. You know, to understand uh, the Mexican-American experience and to experience how life is crossing borders and living in the middle ground allows you to understand others outside of your community. And I, I also believe very deeply that Nepantla is a universal experience that is applied and should be applied internationally. Um, you know, if you, even to those who aren't, of course, Mexican-American, if you've ever loved someone from a different culture or race or religion, or if you've ever tried to make a home in a strange place at once hostile and welcoming, uh, you've ever been felt stymied by ancestors and their demands, yet also emboldened by their sacrifices and forgotten values. You know, you'll find yourself in these pages of Nepantla Familias. Um, I think it's also the quintessential American experience that revives very important foundational values through immigrants and, and really the children of immigrants. So let's, let's go to the writers. You know, um, I'm going to start with David Dominguez. And he holds the BA in Comparative Literature from the University of California at Irvine and an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Arizona. He's the author of Work Done Right from the University of Arizona Press and The Ghost of Cesar Chavez from CNR Press. He teaches English at Reedley College. David, it's all yours. Thank you, Sergio. It's an honor to be included in this anthology with all of these fine authors and including, of course, my, my co-readers today. I read both of your pieces and, and enjoyed them very, very much. So thank you, Sergio, for including me in this collection. I'm going to read the first few pages of Elote Man and, uh, and also, of course, thank you to our, our wonderful host. Ilote man. I stomped down the gutter with shovel in hand. I crushed leaves, aluminum cans, and water bottles with my thorough good Wellingtons as I removed sod along the curb of my new house. Somewhere under the grass, there was a leaky pipe, and the long along my tree-lined street yellowed as the summer heat hovered above the San Joaquin Valley. My pride wouldn't let me ask any of the gardeners working up and down my neighborhood for a little help, 
So no time for road trips to the beach, no bucket teeming with cracked crab, no beer to wash it gloriously down. I held my breath and said a prayer each time I hit a rock with the shovel because I feared it might be the PVC pipe. But in the back of my mind, I enjoyed the extra trips to Home Depot and even saw a maintained sprinkler system as a mark of manhood. No professional gardener would touch my yard. Finally, I had unearthed 30 feet of pipe. More worry filled my heart as I asked whether that was a city waterworks employee watching from the nondescript pickup parked at the end of the block. Had a neighbor ratted who needed the mailman to deliver a fine, a cold slap for using the water on the wrong day of the week. Whatever, I said aloud. I'm my own man, I exclaimed and turned on the sprinkler line. Muddy water filled the trench and I couldn't see the leaks. I turned off the line and fell to my knees on the curb, winced when I landed on a pebble and said another prayer as the dirt soaked up the water. I took out my handkerchief from my back pocket, a blue handkerchief with white stars wiped my forehead and peered into the tree branches above my head. Squirrels leaped from branch to branch deftly as they scurried toward completing their chores. Dried leaves fell on my head. Whatever, I'm my own man, I shouted at them. I've got it all under control, I yelled as I shook my fist at them. With my hands, I scooped water out of the trench and finally ran back to the valve and shut it. I walked up and down the curb using the tip of my shovel to remove leaves, roots, and gravel from the trench as the earth soaked up the water. The pipe was cracked in several places, especially around the sprinkler heads, so I took out the Rhodia three by four inch tablet I keep in my back pocket for such occasions and started my Home Depot shop list with the Pilot Metropolitan fountain pen in the chrome finish also kept in my back pocket. As I wrote down pipe joints, cement, and pipe saw in my best cursive handwriting, a neighbor I had yet to meet pulled up beside me. She looked me up and down, rolled up her window a few inches, and said, hey, how much do you charge? Excuse me? How much do you charge to mow lawns? I don't charge anything. I live here. Oh, sorry. I just assumed. Above my head, the squirrels laughed at me and jumped from tree to tree. More dust and bits of dried leaves fell in my face as I looked up through the splintering sunlight and sneezed. How much do I charge? What the heck? I mumbled as I fell to my knees and extended the tape measure down the length of pipe and along the curb. And as I measured the pipe and made my notes with the pilot, I thought about my dad. I thought about the many weekends we spent working together in the yard. I remembered the time he showed me how to use the red and yellow McLean edger. First, he handed me his key ring, showed me which key to use, and said, open the shed and take out the gasoline can and the edger. I took the key ring, still warm from his pocket, unlocked the deadbolt and opened the shed. Above my head, I saw wasps crawl in and out of their nest between the shed's two by four frame and the corrugated steel roof. I repeated my father's words, gasoline can, edger, 
and feared nothing. I'll take that, son, he said, and pointed at the gasoline can. You bring the edger to the driveway. We walked through the gate, me first, my dad second, our stride and the sway of our shoulders falling in perfect unison among the shadows of the magnolia branches. When we reached the driveway, dad unscrewed the gasoline tank and the gasoline can. Both were empty. Come on, he said, bring the can, tighten the nozzle back up. We need to fill it across the street. Here is a dollar. You give it to the attendant when we get there. I followed my dad down the street. I expected to cross at the light. Instead, we jaywalked. Get ready, he said. And when we crossed, our strides were long and slow and I felt like a man at work. Thank you, David, that was great. And I have to tell you before I, we, we get to our next writer, I love this story. I mean, in part because of the whole father-son issues, which I, I had with my own father and doing all this construction. Um, but it seemed to be so widely appealing to people. Uh, I, kept, I can still keep hearing back from readers on this story, Elote Man. Um, so great job, David. Thank you. So let's turn to our next writer. Uh, Alex Espinosa um, earned his MFA in fiction from the University of California at Irvine. He's the author of Stillwater Saints and the Five Acts of Diego Leon, both from Random House. His newest book is Cruising, an Intimate History of a Radical Pastime. The recipient of a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts in the American Book Award. He teaches at the University of California at, at Riverside. Welcome, Alex. Thank you so much, uh, Sergio. It's great to be here. And it's great to be here with both David and Reina, whose um, work I admire and who are dear friends who I've known for many years. Uh, and it's such a thrill to be part of this anthology. Congratulations, uh, Sergio. It's, it's a beautiful book. Um, I love the cover. Uh, I'm going to read a short section from my essay titled Intoxicated Masculinity. And the, the essay is a kind of an exploration on this idea of the dangerous relationship that oftentimes uh, prevailed in my family around uh, masculinity and, and drug and alcohol abuse. I was seven years old the first time I got drunk. This was in the late 1970s before childproof locks on cabinet doors when we'd ride around the back camper of my uncle's van without seatbelts, before toys came with choking hazards. My mother kept bottles of Thunderbird and Night Train, cheap fortified wine that tasted like paint thinner or gasoline in the cabinet beneath the kitchen sink. She would shove them behind jars of glass cleaner and boxes of powdered dish soap. My siblings and I would often catch her taking swigs now and again throughout the day and sometimes into the evening. I asked her once what the bottles were. Furniture polish, she replied, closing the cabinet door. It started out as a game, a way for me to impress my brothers and sisters, a way for me to be the center of attention in a large family. When our mother or any other adult wasn't around, I'd go to the kitchen, reach into the dark well of the cabinet, my small arms stretching past frag uh, um, fragrant solvents and cleansers, until I touched the cool, smooth glass bottle of cheap booze, unscrew the cap and take short sips, much to the delight of my siblings who watched on, daring me. 
One afternoon when we were home alone, during a brief period when my mother worked at a factory in Monrovia, California, my brother decided to fill a glass tumbler with the foul juice. My siblings stood around me in a circle, watching as I gulped it down in one long and continuous swig. I can't remember now what it felt like to be that drunk at such an early age. I remember that my brother received a stern scolding from our mother, but nothing more, and that the incident became part of our family lore, a story that my siblings and my mother often loved repeating. As I grew up, I quickly learned that alcohol not only provided me with an opportunity to be the center of attention, but it also gave me a chance to assert my masculinity. The way the men in my family showed that they were men was through drinking and smoking. So I kept taking swigs from my mother's bottle of cheap wine even after I got wasted. She didn't hide them anyway. She kept them in the exact same spot. When my older brother came home from his factory job, he'd sit on the couch, crack open a beer and chain smoke cigarettes. It was not uncommon to see me taking sips from his can and puffs from his Marlboros. During large family gatherings at our house in La Puente, my aunts and uncles and our endless stream of cousins descended on our house on warm summer evenings. There'd be music and carne asada, or if the event was truly special, my father would string a live goat from the branch of our lemon tree, slit its throat and prepare the animal for birria. There were ice chests full of beer and enormous amber colored bottles of hard alcohol that glowed warm and menacing under the kitchen's fluorescent lighting. My uncles and older brothers would congregate in the garage where they'd stand around the cooler, uh, pulling back tabs and from can of can of beer, drinking until everything was gone. They'd then talk and move on to the hard alcohol, to shots of tequila or vodka. They talked about ex-girlfriends with supple thighs, soft lips, big breasts, sex in the back seats of cars, accidental pregnancies and secret abortions. I always remained in the background, at the edge, at the periphery of this circle, watching this aggressive show of toxic masculinity. It was both fascinating and disturbing to listen in. I learned things about sex and bodies that a boy my age shouldn't know. And I'll stop there. Alex, I have, you know what I love about your work? I mean, I could, at first I could hear you read forever. But the pacing of your lines, oh my gosh, it just, it's music. And uh, I just, you know, I could hear it all the time. It's just uh, wonderful. Um, and, and, you know, just connecting with the toxic masculinity in my family, you know, the, the, the brutal honesty yeah. uh, and the, the power, in fact, in, in many ways, the dark power of familia, you know, where they, where they kind of drag you to perhaps that you don't want to go. Or yeah. you're too young to know. So bravo. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. So to our final um, reader, and then we're going to get to a discussion with all of them. Reina Grande is a best-selling author of The Distance Between Us and A Dream Called Home. Her other works include the novels Across the Hundred Mountains and Dancing with Butterflies. She has received an American Book Award El Premio Aslan Literary Prize, and the International Book Award. She has also been honored with the Luis Leal Award for Distinction in Chicano Latino Literature. Welcome, Reina. It's all yours. 
Thanks so much, Sergio. So good to be here with you, sharing this space with you and Alex and David. It's so great to meet you. Um, so I'm going to read from my essay, Losing My Mother Tongue. And this essay um, explores my very complicated relationship with Spanish. And I write about how it impacted me with, you know, my relationship with my mother, my relationship with my children, and my relationship with my own writing. Um, so I'll read the, the beginning uh, pages. Losing my mother tongue. When I crossed the border at nine years old, I didn't know that in addition to putting my life at risk, I was also risking the loss of my mother tongue. My journey toward learning English was so traumatic that to this day, I'm still dealing with the repercussions, not only in my career as a professional writer, but also in my interactions with my own family, especially my mother and my children. To my misfortune, the local elementary school I was enrolled in when I arrived in California didn't have a bilingual program or English as a second language, ESL classes. Although I lived in a mostly Latino neighborhood in Los Angeles, my school lacked the necessary resources for immigrant children like me. On my first day of school in September 1985, on realizing that I didn't speak a word of English, my fifth grade teacher pointed to the farthest corner of her classroom and sent me there. She ignored me for the rest of the year. I sat in that corner feeling voiceless, invisible, and deeply ashamed of being a Spanish speaker. The trauma of realizing that the language used in school was the one I didn't know led to debilitating thoughts such as, I am not enough, I am insufficient. I sat there thinking I was the problem. My lack of English was the problem. It didn't cross my nine-year-old mind that perhaps it was my school that was the problem, that my teacher's failure to be sensitive to my needs was the problem. The message I received from my teacher was that if I wanted to be seen and heard, I would have to learn English. As long as I spoke Spanish, I would be ignored and put in a corner. Halfway through the year, my school had a writing competition for which all the students had to write a story. I wrote mine in the only language I knew. When my teacher collected the stories to choose the best one for the competition, she put mine and those of the few other non-English speakers in the reject pile because it was in Spanish. My teacher's rejection of my story hurt me deeply. To me, she wasn't just rejecting my story, she was rejecting me. I felt ashamed to be an immigrant and a Spanish speaker. This and other similar experiences made me feel ignorant and led me to believe that whatever academic concepts I understood and intellectual skills I possessed in my mother tongue were irrelevant. They were in the wrong language and therefore useless to my ability to function and be accepted in my new school and beyond. Two years later, when I was in junior high, I was enrolled in my school's ESL program. Although I was happy to finally be in a self-contained class full of English learners like me, it was humiliating to be in those classes. They were located in the bungalows farthest away from the school grounds. Everyone knew that the students who took classes in those bungalows were the immigrant kids, the ones who didn't have papers and who spoke with a wetback accent. 
I work hard to learn English so that I would no longer have to go to those dreaded bungalows and could rid myself of the stigma of being an ESL student. Also, my ESL program was a transitional model, its purpose being to reclassify the students as soon as possible from English deficient to English proficient, but not necessarily as bilingual or biliterate. I don't remember my teachers ever encouraging me or the other students to nurture and retain our native tongue. We weren't praised for being bilingual, nor were we taught the value of bilingualism. Not once did anyone say speaking two languages was an asset, especially in a diverse country like ours. We didn't read literature in Spanish or do any kinds of activities where we could continue to improve our Spanish skills. Perhaps they saw schoolwork school and literacy in Spanish as a waste of time, since the goal of the program was to have us function exclusively in English-only classrooms. My Spanish remained at the level up to which I had studied in Mexico, third grade. UNESCO defines a second language as a language acquired by a person in addition to his home language. But in my ESL program, instead of addition, subtraction took place. Little by little, my third grade Spanish was replaced by English until I began to think and dream and write only in that language. Years later, I would learn the term for what had happened to me, subtractive bilingualism, the removal of my mother tongue, the psychological violence of tearing out a piece of my being. Okay, I'll stop there. Thank you, Reina. Um, the emotional power of your piece, I keep hearing from readers, um, another one that is just so uh, widely appealing, um, you know, about this break with your mother and how it happened, you know, linguistically. Uh, I think it's something that's just so impressive about this piece, uh, losing my mother tongue. So thank you, Reina, for that. Um, so I'm going to ask a question to all of you and just take turns um, approaching you know, this question, you know, when I sometimes hear about Nepantla, this liminal existence between cultures and languages and countries and identities, I sometimes sense uh, that some see this existence as either a weakness or an indecisiveness or even a confusion. But I have often seen Nepantla, or at least how I experienced it within my family, as a strength, even a painful gauntlet that forced me to pick and choose who I became. Uh, how does Nepantla that occurred in your family, a painful trial that in a way was productive to who you became and what you care about? Well, I personally, I, I agree with you, Sergio. I, I see it as, as that struggle leading to as that struggle becoming a source of strength in in my life, and I'm 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 really glad that you that you see it that way. Uh, I I one of the reasons I loved Raina's piece was because I felt this emotional arch building to the very end of her essay that just explodes when she says, "My daughter's journey to learning a second language." I mean, that was just, that was just beautiful. That was just incredible. So from, yeah. from her struggle, because of her struggle, 
she gave to her daughter the beautiful language of Spanish and made sure that it became part of who she was. And, and when I sat down to write my own essay, I felt torn in two different directions because in one way, the struggle is negative, but in, uh, in many other ways, I felt like, I feel like it's something that has given me strength. And so I didn't want the tone of my essay to be uh, negative. And so as a counterbalance, I tried to add a little bit of humor and I wanted to somehow end with the image of my wife and the image of Fernando Valenzuela. I just knew somehow I wanted to get there because both of those images I feel are, are images of strength. Someone else? Yeah, um, well, I think for me, I've always lived in the middle place because I'm a 1.5 generation immigrant. You know, I came here as a child. I was raised here in the US, but I wasn't born here. And I was kind of like the bridge between my parents' generation and my children's generation, right? So I've constantly have to navigate that middle space. It gets very exhausting, to be honest, um, to always be in, in the middle. And it's also very lonely sometimes, you know, it's lonely and it's isolating being in that middle space. And I've been struggling a lot now, like, with my children, you know, as a mother, it has actually helped me to understand my parents a little more because I know that when we came to live here in the United States and, you know, we started drifting farther and farther away from our parents because we were assimilating, we were learning English. And my parents saw their children go to a place where they could not follow. And I didn't understand that, right? Because I was their child and, you know, I just didn't understand what my parents were going through in terms of beginning to lose us to this country. But I understand it now because now I'm, I'm raising my children and their, you know, um, their experience like as American born middle-class children is an experience that I don't really have that much and I have tried to give them the life that I didn't have. So like I've tried to remove all the barriers that I grew up with, like low income, um, first generation college student, you know, immigrant, Spanish speaking, all of that. So I try to remove the barriers that I grew up with for my children. But in doing that, now I'm starting to see my children go to a place where I cannot follow. And so I was always uh, lonely in terms of my relationship with my parents because once I assimilated, I couldn't quite connect with them. But now I have the same feeling with my children where you know they're living a, a middle-class American life and their childhood is so different from mine that I still feel like an outsider looking in on them and I see them drifting farther and farther away from me so I'm still in that middle place and it's it's difficult sometimes 
but I also understand, you know, that as an immigrant, um, that middle place is the it's where I'm always gonna live, right? Mm -hmm. In 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 that space. So I need to like just learn how to live with it. And I think I think this pandemic and COVID kind of helped me to think about that even more because of that isolation that we have all been experiencing collectively. I'm very familiar with that isolation. And I always turn to my writing to deal with it. So this past year during COVID, I have I have been writing like I've never written in my life. I've been writing like if my life depended on it. So I'm emerging from COVID with two finished books. <laughs> so I use those feelings, that inner turmoil, that conflict, as and I channeled it into my writing. And that's how I survived being in Nepantla. Um, you know, I think that it's, I'm going to, I guess, echo a lot of what uh, David and and Raina mentioned, I think, um, you know, my, my relationship to um, that, that space, that in-between space is, has always been a very complicated, uh, messy, um, uh, jagged one, right? It's like, um, it's like I'm straddling um, a fence that has barbed wire on it and I can either go one way or the other. Um, it's a delicate balance. I, I grew up, um, spending a lot of my time hiding who I was, um, you know, I, I was raised queer. I was, you know, I, I was, I, I was disabled. Well, I still am. I still am queer and disabled. I shouldn't say I was, uh, nothing's changed. Um, I, I grew up with multiple identities that I think in a lot of ways compiled really forced me um, to see myself as not being particularly worthy of any kind of um, social recognition. Uh, so I got really good at hiding. I got really good at, at masking, at, at receding back into the background. And I think that's what a lot of my, my piece is about is is and, and the way in which I think I discovered how alcohol can sort of be this social lubricant that sort of gets me out of that. Um, and the way in which it sort of plays with this idea of masculinity. Um, I, and, and I think when I was writing my last book, um, my, my last nonfiction book, which is uh, Cruising, um, I had to explore issues of, of my own sex and my sexuality, right? Of my own uh, desires as, as, a, as a male, you know, uh, who is uh, attracted to other men. Uh, and I think that there came some truth uh, that I had to face when I was writing that book. And um, I think the essay that I, that I included in the anthology is a movement towards some of that truth, less of an opportunity to um, continue to feel sorry for myself or continue to feel like, you know, I, have to operate in a society that makes me feel like I need to feel sorry about myself. Like I got kind of sick of that after a while. It's just like, screw this. I'm not, I'm no longer, I don't have enough energy to continue to feel sorry about myself or to be ashamed of the life that I lived. Um, so I kind of embraced it. Um, you know, and I, I wrote this book and I, I thought, well, here's my body. I'm going to write about my body. I'm going to write about, you know, um, my being, 
a disabled individual with who's sexual and sexualized, right? That's, you know, um, that was pretty radical for me. Um, my upbringing, um, my culture, the way I was raised, um, I was taught never to talk about things like that, right? I was taught never to, um, you know, mention sex or sexuality, much less sex with men or people of the same gender. So I was committing the ultimate sort of act of rebellion in writing this book and, and holding it up and saying, look, you know, I'm writing about, about, about something that's so taboo. Um, and I think that that's ultimately how I tried to um, navigate that in-between space. I tried to, um, uh, you know, um, take it from a, a source or a space of darkness to a space of light and empowerment, right? Like I'm no longer gonna be tired of having to navigate those two things. I'm just gonna sort of embrace it because that's always been how, you know, what, what it's been like for me. And when I rejected it and I tried to ignore it, I was miserable. So, um, you know, accepting both and, and living it in the dichotomy uh, has, I think, made me a lot happier for good or bad, you know? Thank you, Alex. You know, it's fascinating that all three of you in many ways talk about this, you know, deep loneliness and then some people trying to move beyond it to, you know, I accept who, you know, who I am and, and here I, I'm not going to apologize for who I am because this is, a, this is actually a conversation I've had with almost all of the other writers in this anthology. For example, with Diana Lopez, you may know Diana Lopez, who wrote about Dutiful Daughter, about how what she was doing, and she was a phlebotomist, so it is sort of a somewhat autobiographical short story, and how she, as she got educated, as she moved on to her life, um, it got lonelier. And as she was, you know, and, and, and other people had talked about this, this uh, loneliness of being in the middle ground, of, of uh, and then trying to break out of that loneliness or accepting the uncertainty. Uh, and in and and who you are, and certainly I have felt that way. I still feel that way. Um, you know where I am and what I can talk to my mother about, who's still alive. It's you know I'm separate from her, and I have to kind of agree to just live my own life and and be proud of who I am and whatever that is. But on the other hand, just like Reina, you know I I did not want my children to suffer like I did. You know, they're not going to carry chickens for their first summer job. Um, and, you know, and so our success, all of us, I think I would classify you as very successful writers in, in, in your own way. You know, you're trying to move up the ladder, whatever that ladder is. But it also, um, you know, I told my children very bluntly who grew up in New York City and went to school in New York City. I said, you know, you don't understand the fear. And that, that comes from coming from nowhere, from having nothing or less than nothing. And this sort of drive um, that I would, you know, when I went to, to a school that I had no clue what it was uh, in the Ivy League, um, this I'd rather die than fail. Um, and they're much in a much more comfortable place, of course, because of our success. So, so I, I feel that loneliness from both sides, from being very separate and really rejecting and accepting some of my parents' values. Um, and then also knowing that my children are going to, you know, I'm astonished at how brave and, 
and put together well put together they are at 22 and 23 and I said gosh I was not like that you know I you know I was I was in pieces I didn't know who I was and you know and and everyone thought you know you're a Mexican what are you doing here uh or whatever but let me go to another question and and see what you guys what, what your response is when you we think about identity too often we think of static entities as if being American is somehow a fixed concept. Yet I see the experience of Nepantla at the heart of what renews and remakes our country. Tell me in what ways you think your experience of Nepantla is redefining, reinvigorating what it means to be part of this country. Why must we always push back against these static definitions of identity? You want to start us off, Alex? <laughs> I, I think I think David <laughs> wanted to say something. <laughs> I saw him move. Yeah. <laughs> well, no <laughs> Like, like for me, one thing that that I'm always concerned about is is the way Latinos are are stereotyped. That just that just drives me crazy. That that was one of the reasons I I chose to to write about these experiences of, of being stereotyped in, in my own essay. Um, and I've, I've, often, I've often asked myself, why are we stereotyped like that? Why are we seen that way? Why, is, why are these various forms of negative stereo, why do these negative forms of negative stereo, why do these negative forms of stereotyping often <laughs> define our identity? And, and, and so I feel I'm almost con I'm conscientious of it. I feel a sense of responsibility, as you just said, Sergio, to push back against that stereotype and just be like, whoa, you know, we're we're not we're not just the stereotypical picture of a cholo in the inner city, right? Just because I'm in my front yard repairing the sprinklers doesn't man doesn't mean that I'm the gardener and by the way if I was there's nothing wrong with that but it is possible that I'm more than that as well so I think that that we have to to const constantly push back against those negative views of of who we are as brown people so that we are are seen more accurately as what defines us as, as human beings. And, and when I think about why are we, why are we often stereotyped? I, I often think, well, sometimes it's our own fault. And one of the reasons I think it can be our own fault is, is because if you, if you think about what percentage of Latinos earn a bachelor's degree, a master's degree and a PhD, it's abysmally low. Off the top of my head, I know the numbers to, for the 2012 census, the number of Latinos in America who get a bachelor's degree is 12%, who get a master's degree is 4%, and who have a PhD or MD, now we're talking less than 1%, right? And then if you split that number in half, now we can ask ourselves, well, what percentage of male Latinos have an education, right? Now it's going to be even worse, right? What percentage of of Latinas have that level of education. And so to, to make the way we are seen, to make the way 
our identities are often defined different, I think we have to begin by looking at ourselves. And what better way of doing that than to make sure, to make darn sure that our children do better than us and that we remove from their journey through life any any obstacles that we had to overcome. I think, I think Sergio, another, another um, anthology should focus on how Latinos strive to help their children overcome the obstacles they face because not all Latinos are like that. But, you're giving me more work, David. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sorry. But, but, but thank goodness, you know, it's something that we've talked about we long to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think, yeah, I think David brings up a really valid point about the, um, the place of stereotypes, I think, in our culture. Um, my, my approach has always been, you know, I, people are going to think what they think about me. Um, and and the, our society at large has these, you know, constructed notions of what and and how we look like and what and how we're supposed to be and you know what what fields of work we we're and you know Nepantla I guess the concept of it has given me the opportunity to really say fuck it to that, um, to really not care um, about what people think about me. Um, because I just always say, look at me. I mean, I'm this bald, short Mexican with a disability who's queer. And, you know, I, I the youngest of 11, really the, the kind of the runt of the litter. Um, everything was, was, was stacked up against me. And I, I somehow managed to, um, eke out a, a pretty good life for myself. So I think that I, you know, I walk out in the world and I automatically, you know, tell myself, I know people are gonna think a certain thing about me, right? Uh, but I choose not to give those uh, constructs power over my life in any way uh, to dictate how I act or behave because I think that's the ultimate form of of um, institutional racism uh, is to is to go out and to um, let those things um, get under my skin, let them upset me, you know, let them piss me off. Um, I just say fuck it, you know, think whatever you want to think about me. Um, I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing, <laughs> and, you know, and that's that's kind of how I had to be. I was I was forced to be that way, um, you know. I was forced to be that 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 tough and resilient in a lot of ways because I just got knocked down a lot. And every time I tried pretending, every time I tried assimilating or, you know, fitting in, it just never worked out. So I'm just gonna be me, you know? And, and I don't care what other people think about me. I'm just, I'm just gonna do what I do. Before we let Drena in on, on this, because it's, it's going to be her turn, but do you think, Alex, it's a function of age, too? Because I mean, I've reached a point in me vale. I'm going to tell them so. exactly what I think, and I don't really care. You know, I think, uh, and, I think so. And I also think it's a function of, I, I think that we're also seeing a new, a new generation, I think, of, of, of 
of Latinos and Latinas who are really embracing who they are. I mean, I take my nephews, for example. I have two nephews who are queer and one is gender nonconforming and they're so proud of who they are. Um, they don't care what anyone thinks. They, um, I know I was like, oh my God, well, I wonder what my brother thought, you know, cause I knew growing up, my brother had certain opinions and my nephews were like, well, who cares? Who cares what my father thinks? Um, I'm, I'm going to be happy with who I am. And, and so I think that it's, I think that it is a product of age, but I think it's also a product of, of a newer generation that's sort of, that's coming up that, that grew up with me too, that grew up with, you know, Black grew, up with Alex, grew up with Alex Espinosa. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that being a bad influence, but I think they grew up with that and they, you know, they grew up with social media and they've had opportunities to look at different facets of who we are and they're not ashamed of it. They're, they're proud of it. So, so I think it's, yeah, I think it's a product of age and I, but I think it's also a product of, of a generational shift that I think we're seeing happening. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I, I forgot what your question was, Sergio, but... <laughs> <laughs> why, why must we struggle and push back against these static definitions of identity? Of identity. Yeah, I, you know, I, I feel a lot of inner turmoil constantly and I'm getting tired of it and I wish I could be more like Alex and just say, just fuck it. <laughs> I'm going to be who I am and that's that because it gets really tiring, you know, like um, as, a, as a Latina, you know, I'm constantly pushing back against mainstream, mainstream culture and society. But I'm also always struggling within my own community, right? Of how I'm seen by my own community, um, my place within my own community and the criticism also, right? Dealing with criticism, all of that. So that gets also very tiring. But, and then when I go to Mexico, that brings up a whole lot of other complicated mm -hmm. emotions. Because when I go to Mexico, there's all these like guilt and like self-disgust at how American I am. Like when I'm here in the US, I'm always saying, oh no, I haven't become Americanized. I'm still a lot, you know, Mexican and I'm proud of it and blah, blah, blah. And then I go to Mexico and I realize I'm just lying to myself. I am super freaking Americanized. Like who am I kidding, right? So then there's all this self-disgust that happens every time I go to Mexico and guilt and like survivor's guilt, right? Mm -hmm. That I can get out of, you know, all of that poverty and whatever, um, that my family is living through over there. So there's a lot of inner turmoil and, and uh, very complicated, very complicated stuff going on. And then of course, like I'm always observing my children too, like in terms of like, how are they growing up and how do they see themselves? And, you know, like, like my son, for example, I made the mistake of not teaching him Spanish, right? And he's constantly being criticized at school for, you know, by the Mexican kids who criticize him mm -hmm. for not speaking Spanish. And they're like, well, what kind of Mexican are you? You can't even speak Spanish. Um, so I feel bad about the way he's, he's been constantly criticized and made to feel less, less of a Latino because he can't speak Spanish. 
But then when we do get, when we do speak Spanish, then we're criticized by the other ones, right? So like, there's always constantly criticism, like you're damned if you, if you do it and you're damned if you don't, that kind of stuff. So I see that happening um, with, with myself and with my kids and it does get exhausting. And sometimes I just kind of would like to be at a place where mentally, and maybe even physically where I can just say fuck it and can I just like live my life without <laughs> having to prove anything to anyone. Thank you. So let, let me give you one last question for all of you. Um, and this is a, a good one. What advice would you give young, younger writers or the younger generation in general experiencing their version of Nepantla as immigrants or the sons or daughters of immigrants how do you think their experiences will be different from what your experience was? And how, and how would you suggest this younger generation navigate crossing borders that may not be understood by their parents or even supported by them? I think Raina should take this one. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope all of you give it a shot. First, I think Raina should take it first. Um. Yeah, when it comes to parental support, I'm going to say you got to do your thing. You know, your parents have lived their lives already mm-hmm. and they can guide you and give you, you know, give you guidance, give you advice. But ultimately, it, it's your life and you got to live it how you want to live it. Right. So um, unfortunately, you know, in our Latino community, there's so much uh, pressure that we get from our families so so much expectation also and you know and and there's all these traditions that we need to adhere to especially young latinas you know who are constantly having their wing their wings clipped by a patriarchal um, society and and our patriarchal mexican culture so i'm just gonna say you gotta fly you know you gotta fly and leave the nest and it's scary, uh, especially at the beginning, it's scary, but you gotta do it and you'll find your way. Um, I think, you know, I think it's important, you know, to, to recognize that our experiences are, are complex, are, are layered, are, are messy, are, um, you know, not, not the same, right? I mean, Reina and I were both born in Mexico, but Reina's experience with Mexico is very different than mine, right? It's, it's, we're, you know, it's a very different, it's very different from David's. It's very different from everybody in the anthology. So I think, I think one of the things to recognize is, you know, we, we shouldn't feel like we have to ascribe to a certain kind of narrative that's out there about us, right? That, that our, our um, experiences are, are messy and complicated and varied and, and no one should make us feel like, well, you know, you're not really a Mexican because you didn't, you didn't, you know, you didn't cross the border. Um, you were born here or, you know, you're not really a Mexican because, you know, you don't eat beans or you don't like, you know, we shouldn't let anybody um, tell us what our story should be, right? I think we need to be, we need to own whatever experiences you know, we have and, 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 and call those, you know, Latino experiences, right? I think that oftentimes we feel like 
We feel the pressure to um, abide by certain um, expectations that are put on us by um, American society that are false, that are created and shaped by uh, the media or by um, other factors that, that know nothing about us, right? And so we, we end up sort of buying into that. And, and I don't think we have to. I think we need to be a lot more vigilant uh, about that and, and, and take a look around and say, well, this is my experience and it's, it's just as valid a Latino experience as anybody else's, whether I was born here or, or in, you know, in, in India or in Mexico or in Brazil or wherever. My experiences are my own and I need to own them and be proud of them. I feel, I feel very blessed every time a student comes to me and says, I wanna be a poet. I wanna be a fiction writer. I wanna write my autobiography. How do I do that? And oftentimes those students are Latino because at Reedley College, it's 75% Hispanic. And they ask me questions like, can I use Spanish if I'm writing in English? And so right there, you can see how they're already fighting the issues that we're talking about. And of course I tell them, yes, if it can only be expressed in Spanish, then you say it in Spanish is what I tell them. So if a young writer comes to me and says, I wanna be a poet, how do I do that? It reminds me of myself at that age. And this is what I tell them. And this is my advice. Become the best possible reader and writer that you can be on the face of the earth. Read every book that you can get your hands on. Know why you love it. Break it down into little teeny tiny pieces and put it back together so that then you can do it too. Be the best sentence writer you can be become a master of craft and apply those tools to the page. And sometimes they'll say, does grammar matter? And I'll say, yes, it matters because that shows respect for the reader. Good grammar leads to clarity and clarity shows respect for your reader. And when you master those things, I tell them, then you will be able to reveal what, for example, William Faulkner referred to as the verities of the human heart love, honor, pity, pride, compassion, and sacrifice. And that's what we're trying to do here. I'll give you a quick example. In, in Alex's essay, he says, it was shame that made me develop an unhealthy dependency. It was shame that made me hide my sexuality. He repeats, it was shame, it was shame. Now that didn't happen by accident. That happened because he knows how to write an amazing sentence and he has mastered craft. And through that process, he has revealed his heart to the reader. And that's what I tell the young writers who come to me to do if they say, how do I do it? So that's my advice. So thank you to David Dominguez and Alex Espinosa and Reina Grande. I am not surprised we've had a fantastic conversation because these are fantastic writers. And for joining us today on the Skylight Books podcast in Los Angeles. And thank you 
also to all the audience members for listening and please pick up a copy of Nepantla Familias at Skylight Books and enthusiastically support independent bookstores. We need them and we will certainly appreciate that support. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us today. And as Sergio mentioned, you can get your very own copy of Neplantas Familias at skylightbooks.com and with us in store. Thank you for joining us and enjoy the episode. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.